0: Hello, guys. Welcome to Forget the Fad podcast. I am joined today with a very clever guy called Stefan Guillené. I hope I pronounced that right. I have. A...
1: <laughs> you did pronounce it right. Yes. Thank you.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, Stefan has a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry, a PhD in Neuroscience. He spent the past 12 years in neuroscience research, studying the neuroscience of eating behaviours on obesity, and you are the author of the book I'm reading through again, um, The Hungry Brain. Um, did I get all that right, Stefan?
1: That is correct.
0: Yes. Is there anything you would care to add? Um, no, I think that's a pretty good summary. All right. Hey, nailed it. Um, so today what I want to do is discuss the kind of why... We are obese. Why is society obese? Not me and you, Stefan. And uh, the general history of obesity. Um, so, first and foremost, what are the principles behind obesity? Why, why does obesity occur? Why do we get fat? Basically.
1: Yeah. So the. Kind of, you can look at this from a number of different levels, but I think one way of looking at it that I think is really clear and simple is just to look at the physics of it or the thermodynamics of it is a a better way to put it. So um, basically for energy to accumulate inside the body, there has to be more energy entering the body than there is energy leaving the body. So we know that Whatever is causing obesity, it has to be something that is causing energy to accumulate in the body because that's what fat storage is. Fat tissue is an energy storage tissue, and it's way more energy dense than any other tissue in the body. And so uh, obesity is, is a condition of excess energy storage, and that energy is getting in there somehow, whether it's eating more energy than you need for your daily needs or whether it's because you're uh, not expending as much energy as you should be in your physical activity or metabolic rate or whatever it is. And so I think that's the first thing to recognize just to kind of get a toehold on things is that it is the result of a calorie imbalance. And this this is a a prediction from physics, from thermodynamics, but it's also been something that's been directly confirmed by experiments in humans and other species and and by the way the only reason i'm spending so much time on this is because it's somehow become controversial on the internet uh but this is really not controversial among scientists and researchers
0: so how is it uh, controversial what is the argument at the other end uh
1: well there are there are a couple of arguments um one of the arguments i've seen is i don't see this one very often but is that thermodynamics doesn't apply to humans that were somehow exceptional and the physics that applies to all other objects in the universe does not apply to humans somehow uh that that's one argument i've seen or or people just misunderstanding what the first law of thermodynamics means which is the law that underlies what i was just saying um and Another thing we see is uh, the argument that um, calories, that, that the uh, calories outside of the equation can be affected by what we eat. And that's actually true to some extent. Um, so, but, but it's kind of a reherring. It's not really undermining the, the physics and the thermodynamics that I just said, it's just a special case. That um, is a subcategory of those things. So another thing I want to mention here that I think is important is, you know, just because calories matter a lot, just because energy matters a lot, that doesn't mean that counting calories and managing calories by, you know, measuring the amount you're burning on a treadmill and eating the right amount of calories. That doesn't mean that that particular strategy is necessarily going to be the optimal strategy for managing body weight and losing weight in the long term but whatever strategy is effective it will be effective because somehow it is changing that balance so it's about creating a deficit in order to lose weight if if weight loss is your goal it's about creating a deficit or if weight maintenance
0: is about your goal it's about not allowing an excess to occur so how has uh, the kind of the world changed? Where did uh, when or really when did obesity and becoming overweight really kind of hit us?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you can find examples of obesity going back thousands of years. I mean, literally to the beginning of recorded history, and even perhaps even there's some evidence that it goes even before that. Um, in we 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 actually have ancient egyptian mummies today from thousands of years before uh before christ that show that um there was obesity so at least among people who were royals you know at the top of the socioeconomic ladder there was some obesity occurring and we know that you know royals uh Royals in Europe were sometimes obese, too. Henry VIII was famously obese and may have died as a consequence of diabetic complications. Um, So, there, you know, people who have had access to affluent diets and lifestyles have been able to be obese for a long time, and in fact, um, there's a little bit of evidence that, you know, even Paleolithic people at least had a concept of what an obese person looks like Because there are these little carvings, like the Venus of Willendorf, that um, depict an obese person, an obese woman, that people think was some, like, sex symbol, basically, for them, um, or some kind of fertility god figure. Um, But at the same time, if we look at non-industrial populations, and particularly hunter-gatherers, but also agricultural populations that are living the type of lifestyle that humans have lived for either thousands or millions of years, we see that actually obesity is very rare. So not to say that it never ever happens, you can occasionally find some examples of it. Uh, In the Polynesian islands you had, um, it was a status symbol to have the chief of your village or your island be obese. So they would feed, they would overfeed The chief to make him look big and powerful and and affluent and by, you know, by extension, make the whole community, uh, appear affluent and powerful. And so there are, there are little examples here and there, but certainly, um, you don't see the kind of the explosion in the prevalence of obesity that we have in the modern world. That's something that's much more recent. So, uh, And it actually has its roots. The roots go back a long ways. I mean, I I talked about the very, very first roots, but even if we go back 100 years, and the United States is the country that I know the best, but this trajectory is actually pretty similar in all affluent countries, maybe not to the same degree, and maybe it started a little later, but the trajectory is actually really similar. In the United States, we see, um, if we look back 100 years, or I should say 120, 130 years, there was very little obesity. I mean, we see that one in 17 uh, middle-aged white men back in 1890 was had obesity. I mean, that is just in striking contrast to today where something like four, over 40%, I think, of middle-aged white men are obese in the United States. So um, there's been this kind of gradual increase over the course of the 20th century in body fatness. But the, the thing that we call the obesity epidemic is where that um, increase accelerated in the 1980s. So it started either in the late 70s or around 1980, um, plus or minus a few years, and the the prevalence really accelerated. So obesity prevalence more than doubled between 1980 and I think the the mid-90s or so, and it's still going up. I mean, in the United States, the adult obesity prevalence is 38% right now, according to CDC data. So that's more than one third of adults. And in fact, if you look at the, and you have to consider that includes people who are 18 years old, 20 years old, that haven't yet reached the maximum risk of obesity. If you look at lifetime risk of obesity, the chance that someone alive today will be obese, will have obesity at some point in his or her lifetime, it's like 50-50 in the United States. So something like half of people at some point in their life will have obesity in in this country and we're we're one of the the leaders in In uh, obesity, of course, go USA, but um, (laughs) it's uh, it's 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 not quite as bad, but it's also very bad in other affluent countries um, where you have similar perhaps not quite as bad, but similar types of trends, similar types of prevalences happening, even in these countries that we traditionally think of as lean countries like France and Japan. They are leaner, but they're still experiencing increases in obesity rate. China, a lot of obesity in China, a lot of uh, disease and diabetes developing where it was very rare before. So that's kind of the that's kind of a picture of the the changes in prevalence that have happened over
0: time. Cool. Um, so how is um, what has changed massively nutritionally wise? Um, since really, the um, well, like you said, it's the late seventies, eighties, and what's changed from then.
1: Yeah, so I think you know just to paint in in the broadest brushstrokes I can, uh, first just to kind of set the stage. I think that the basic things that have driven the rise in obesity are industrialization and affluence. And basically, what those two things um, have done are industrialization has brought new technology that has made food more refined and more calorie-dense and more appealing, made it more convenient and made it cheaper. And at the same time, um, affluence has also made it cheaper relative to our total income. So if you go back to 1925 in the United States, or 19, I forget, 30 or 40, we were spending a quarter of our disposable income on food. Today in the U.S., we're spending 10% of our disposable income on food. So people like to complain about food prices. It is cheaper than it's ever been in human history. So, and this is, it's probably especially cheap in the U.S., but it's also cheap in affluent countries in general. And so uh, relative to income, that is. And so, um, you also have with, uh, with the rise of affluence and technology together, you have the development of all these technologies that have mechanized the physical activity out of our lives. So we've, we've outsourced our food preparation, we've outsourced the food side, and we've also outsourced the physical activity to mechanization. So, and, and this is, really not hard to uh, understand if you think about what life was like in 1900 in Europe or in the United States you think about there were there were no automobiles how do you get it around you well you're walking or you're riding a horse um there were not cars you know even riding a horse is more work than being in a car and uh how do you do the dishes how do you do the laundry you might have to take care of your farm. You might have to milk the cows. You might have to weed the fields. All these little things in our day-to-day life that we don't even think about the fact today that they're mechanized, people had to do those by hand before, and that costs energy. So there was physical activity built into the very fabric of life. Um, but even back then, you know, the pe- there were some people who didn't have to do that, the wealthy, and they often became fat those people were able to outsource their physical activity and they also often became fat. So basically the average person in the modern United States today is living like a king lived 500 years ago with, you know, affluence and other people doing things for them, like preparing amazing tasting food and doing all their physical activity. And the outcome is very similar is excess body fatness. Um, so this is this is kind of, just as a side note, this is kind of uh, why I'm a little skeptical of arguments about um, ob- we're obese because of the pesticides or herbicides or uh, hormone disruptors in our food and things like that. Not saying that I know for sure that they don't play a role and there's still a lot of uncertainty there. So I'm... Not saying I know that those things don't matter, but um, you don't need those things to explain modern obesity, because obesity has always been happening throughout history among people who live like we do today. So before they had chemicals, so before they had, I should say, industrial chemicals. So um, you don't need that hypothesis to explain what's happening to us today. All you have to do is to consider the really simple, uh, it's just to have common sense and look at the way our lives have changed. So, um, I think that if you look, spe- your question really related specifically to the nutritional composition of foods. And so I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more. Um, our food has gradually, well, okay, I'll, I'll talk about what's changed more recently with the obesity epidemic, because that's that's really what you were asking. Um, and I think there are basically two things intersecting. So it, the w- what we've seen over the whole course of the 20th century is this uh, trend toward the outsourcing of our food preparation. So basically, instead of cooking food, in the kitchen in the home from single ingredients we pay other people to prepare food and then we eat it in restaurants or we purchase it pre-made in the grocery store and eat it at home Um, and not to say that nobody cooks but it's becoming less and less prevalent over time so and and these trends are really striking i mean the proportion of our disposable income today that we spend in the United States on food away from home is about 50%. It's a little over 50%. Used to be, uh, more than 100 years ago, it was less than 10%. So there have been huge changes in how we interact with food and how we interact with the food industry. Um, and, and these foods have become progressively more, uh, they've been engineered by food Corporations to stimulate our motivational circuits as much as possible So they have uh, their physical and chemical properties have been designed uh, either intentionally or unintentionally to Maximize our purchase behaviors because that's what you have to do in a competitive uh, market If you're not maximizing purchasing behavior Then you're going to get put out of business by the guy who is and so our foods have basically been crafted, uh, over time to have maximum appeal and that, uh, that drives us to overeat. So that, that trend has really been going on, um, throughout the 20th century and the 21st, um, we're eating more, su- more added sugars, more added fats, um, generally more refined and palatable ingredients are going into our food, um, but there's another thing that I think contributed substantially here because um, there was, it's not like there was a marked change in our food system in 1980 that made us all of a sudden start getting fat. I think we have to propose that there was something else. And I think at least part of the explanation is actually the decline in cigarette smoking that occurred around that time. So... Smoking cigarettes is one of the worst possible things you can do for your health. However, it does suppress appetite, and it suppresses body weight. And so if you look at the trend in cigarette smoking in the United States over the 20th century, what you see is that it goes up and up and up until the until about 1950, and then it stays really high through the early to mid-70s, and then... After about the mid-70s, it starts to drop very rapidly as anti-smoking campaigns are really gaining steam. And, uh, and then today, we smoke 70 percent, and this is a U.S. statistic, we smoke fewer than 70 percent of the number of cigarettes, I should say, we smoke uh, fewer than 30 percent of the number of cigarettes that we used to smoke back in the 70s. So the smoking has gone down dramatically. We know smoking cessation causes increased calorie intake. It causes increased body weight. This is a well-established effect of smoking cessation. So basically what I think happened was we were, our diet was becoming gradually more and more fattening over the course of the 20th century, but a portion of that fattening effect was essentially being masked by the rise in cigarette consumption. And then when we stopped smoking so many cigarettes, that effect was unmasked, and all those, all the fattening diet and lifestyle hit us with full force, and that caused an uh, increasing um, prevalence of obesity, increased it more rapidly than it was before. So that's kind of my
0: um, way of thinking about it cool excellent and you know it is quite uh, a lot of people out there who do quit smoking um just from anecdotal they do seem to to pile on the weight and almost use smoking as a kind of anti-obesity strategy which is kind of replacing uh, one really bad thing with another bad thing um i wanted to go back over the fact that obviously uh you mentioned sugar and fat and this is going to link us nicely to the kind of the brain section of the podcast and in actual fact sugar and fat um with it being so kind of highly palatable um isn't really the reason but it is the reason as well why um obesity is so prevalent um what happens what sort of responses is the brain getting from sugar and fat and we know it's just an overconsumption of calories sugar and fat isn't bad in moderation but it's just easily overeaten. could you go into a bit more detail in how these kind of um the responses the brain has when these foods are eaten yeah absolutely so
1: there are a couple of different properties we have to consider um when you're eating foods that are really concentrated in sugar and fat or particularly just in calories generally um there are a couple different regions of the brain that are really, um, that are really relevant to how we respond to those things and to why we overeat. Um, so the brain, the human brain has been crafted by natural selection and natural selection is all about reproductive success. So how well are you going to survive and produce the next generation that is going to survive and produce the next generation? So, uh, obviously energy is a really critical component to survival for any organism and animals obtain energy by eating things. And so for humans, natural selection has wired our brains, hardwired our brains to motivate us to to cause us to be motivated by the food properties that kept our ancestors alive. And so, and, and fertile, I should say alive and fertile. And so, Those are primarily the energy-containing nutrients, carbohydrate, fat, and protein. And so um, the way this works is that we have receptors primarily in the small intestine, but also in the mouth uh, and possibly in a couple other places like the liver, Where, but this happens mostly as a result of small intestine. But basically, when you eat food, There are receptors in your intestine that detect all kinds of things about that food i mean they're detecting many many different things we have receptors in the lining of the small intestine we don't even know what they do yet there are tons of receptors they're measuring all kinds of things and those that information about the carbohydrate and fat and protein content as well as a couple other things like salt and uh, glutamate which is that meaty umami flavor those things get reported to the brain and what they do is we don't know how it gets to the brain yet but we know that once it gets there it starts to spike dopamine production and dopamine release in a part of the brain called the ventral striatum which some people know as the nucleus accumbens and essentially what happens there um this the, the the ventral striatum is a really key part of the brain for motivation and craving. So essentially any kind of, uh, kind of visceral or impulsive motivation that you have, like you smell a smell and it makes you really want to eat that food or you want to have sex or you want to put a sweater on when it's cold or uh, any of these kind of like basic motivations that kind of well up from inside us and we're aware of them but we don't really control them and we don't really know where they came from those things are are very deeply tied into the activity of this ventral striatum and particularly to what happens when dopamine hits the ventral striatum so you eat these foods let's say you eat I like to use a pizza as my analogy you eat pizza your small intestine measures what's in the pizza and it sends a signal to the brain and that says to the brain, hey, this is a really rich source of starch and fat and, some, and salt and somewhat of protein. And what happens in your ventral striatum is that dopamine gets released in proportion to the concentration of those nutrients that your gut detects. So the more of those things your gut detects, the more dopamine release you get in the brain. And what that does is it motivates you to keep eating whatever you're eating. So you're going to be really into that slice of pizza. But more importantly, it causes you to learn. It sets your motivational level for the next time you encounter the pizza. So what happens is your brain takes in all of the sensory cues that are happening at the time, the smell, The appearance of the pizza, the triangular shape of the slices, the box it came in, uh, the texture in your mouth, the taste, where you were when you ate it, who you were with, what kind of situation it was. And all of those things become associated with all those nutrients you just got, all the good stuff in your belly. And those become motivational triggers the next time you encounter them. So those things. Next time, we'll get your dopamine spiking. So the next time you smell pizza, your brain says, oh, I remember this. This is associated with having a bunch of awesome nutrients in the belly. And so it'll spike your dopamine and trigger your motivation or your craving to eat that pizza. And so this is this is basically, and it's not just pizza. This happens with all foods. This happens with apples. This happens with salmon. This happens with healthy stuff, unhealthy everything but the difference is that when those nutrients are really concentrated and especially when they're combined together so lots of sugar and lots of fat and starch in the same thing like a pastry or cake cookies when those are really concentrated they spike dopamine more and that motivates you more and then you will eat more and you'll have a harder time controlling your impulse to eat and so um so that's one thing that concentrated fat and sugar will will do to your brain. It will heighten your motivation to eat foods that contain those things and it will cause you to in in most people and this varies by individual, you know, some people are affected more by this than others, but uh most of us are strongly affected by this including myself. When you when you encounter that sensory cue, the sight of the pizza or the smell of it Especially if it's free or if it's readily accessible It's gonna be hard to control that impulse and that's because of that dopamine reinforcement that's occurred so that's one thing the second thing with really concentrated fat and sugar is that um, the, the second brain region we have to understand is uh, the brainstem and particularly a part of the brainstem called the nucleus tractus solitarius and this is a part of the brain that's really intimately involved in satiety or fullness. And, and like the ventral striatum, the NTS monitors what's happening in your gut, and it receives information about what's going on down there. So it, it, it hears about how much carbohydrate, how much fat, how much protein you just ate, and it hears about how much volume is in your stomach, That's a really key signal it gets, and it integrates all that stuff together into a satiety signal. So it's deciding, based on all this stuff going on, how full to make you feel. And that's really important because that feeling of fullness is what most of us use as a signal to gauge when to terminate our meals. So the number of calories that we have ingested to achieve that feeling of fullness generally is going to determine the number of calories that we're going to eat at a meal. So, um, because most of us will just keep eating till we hit that point. And, but you can, depending on the food type, you can eat many more or many fewer calories to reach that food, or sorry, to reach that point, because different food properties affect the activity of that brain region in different ways. And so what we see is that when you have Foods that are really concentrated in calories, the this the technical term for that is energy density or calorie density. So foods that are really rich and that don't contain much water, don't contain much fiber. These are things like uh, like we were what we were talking about earlier, the pizza and the cookies and the cake, uh, the candy.
0: All the uh, good stuff.
1: All the good stuff. Yeah. Um, per unit calorie those things do not create the same satiety response. And it's really simple. Why? It's because they don't fill your stomach up as much per calorie. So, you know, a hundred calories of a really calorie dense food doesn't stretch your stomach as much as a hundred calories of a low calorie dense food, like apples or oatmeal or something like that. And so your brain hears that signal and it does not generate as much of a fullness signal. So, what that means is that to get to the point where you feel full, you have to eat way more calories if you're eating pizza or cookies or chips or whatever it is than if you were eating the oatmeal and the apples
0: and the fresh meats and things like that. Awesome. Um obviously with kind of the way um you mentioned protein, sugars, uh fats interact with the kind of brain's response. How important um, is it then in a kind of growing brain, I automatically think of kind of children's nutrition. Do you mind, do you, do you, do you look into that any, uh, Stefan?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's, I think this is a really interesting topic, because, you know, when we think about how to uh, reverse the obesity epidemic, we know that it is, more difficult to reverse obesity in an individual than it is to prevent obesity in someone who does not already have it. And so the the most uh, tractable way to reverse the obesity epidemic is to prevent the next generation from experiencing it in the first place. And we're doing a great and, job. <laughs> yeah, we're doing a great job. Um, and so part of that maybe would be, uh, you know, one strategy we could take to this, and this has not really been rigorously evaluated, um, as an intervention, but it's something that I think makes a lot of sense is to try to, um, help shape children's food preferences in such a way that they tend to gravitate more toward healthy food and less toward unhealthy food. And, uh, and the reason, the kind of, uh, logic underlying this is that we, so this process I was telling you about with the gut nutrient sensing and dopamine in the brain, this is how we learn our food preferences. So, uh, when you eat food, your gut detects that, you know, sugar, fat, carbohydrate, um, starch, uh, protein, et cetera. It goes up to the brain and the brain says, okay, I like this. I like the, I like this food you just ate, so I'm going to make you enjoy the flavor of whatever it was that was associated with that fat and sugar and protein, etc. And so that's how we acquire a taste for things like cheese, maybe that has a strong odor that might be repulsive to a Chinese person, or how a Chinese person... Acquires a taste for fermented tofu that is repulsive to a person uh, living in Europe or the United States because we, you know, you make those associations and those things happen especially in childhood. So, childhood is really the period where those associations are going to be uh, happening the most and happening the strongest. And so, you can. S- theoretically at least set a child up to have certain food preferences that will persist throughout their lives um however i mean i recognize that this is not an easy thing to do you know i want to tell a little anecdote i have a friend who uh they have a a young son he's maybe a year and a half old now and they try to give him a healthy diet so they don't they, they tried not to expose him to things like cookies and cake and stuff. And they understand that he'll eat that stuff at some point, but uh, they don't want him to get used to it yet. And um, but they were away on vacation and their dad was taking care of them. <clears throat> Sorry, my my friend's father was taking care of his grandson and uh, gave him a little piece of a donut. And the kid will not stop talking about it. So just this little piece is like seared into his brain about how amazing it was. And he's always talking about dodot, dodot, dodot. And he sees things like bagels. He thinks bagels are dodots. Um, That's and, just
0: after one little piece.
1: Yeah, one little piece. So this is how our brains are set up. They are set up to value these nutrients that they have been hardwired to value by natural selection because those were the things that helped our ancestors survive getting concentrated sources of sugar and fat and all that kept them alive and fertile. Um, today we have the opposite problem. We get too much of that stuff. And, but, but still I, you have to recognize that we're fighting a difficult battle here because of how the brain is wired. Um, That said, I think it is likely that we can probably influence the food preferences of our children in a positive direction by feeding
0: them healthy foods today. Awesome. Um, You mentioned the best kind of combat to obesity is not becoming obese in the first place. Um, and Probably a lot of people that are listening to this are kind of listening um, from a weight management perspective. Um, so what implications does obesity have on the brain and why is kind of weight management so difficult
1: yeah yeah so this is a great question and you know if it was easy to lose weight we would not have an obesity epidemic most people do not want to be carrying excess fat and if it was easy they would have already lost it so it's obviously a challenging endeavor But the question is why? And what's remarkable to me is that we actually know, we pretty much, we have a very good understanding, I would say, of why it's hard to lose weight and why people often regain. But that information, for some reason, there's just so much misinformation and nonsense out there that the real information is getting drowned out. And this is part of what I am trying to do with my book is get the real information out there. But researchers have understand have understood what was going on for quite a long time. Um, And basically what's happening is that you in the brain, there is a system that regulates body fatness. The system is primarily located in the hypothalamus, which is a small brain region on the base of the brain. Uh, the the bottom of the brain, I should say, close to where the optic nerves cross. And it is a part of the brain that specializes in maintaining uh, the stability of certain things inside the body. And so just to give you one example, the hypothalamus is what regulates your body temperature. So body temperature is very, very tightly regulated in humans. Um, it's generally stays within you know a degree celsius no matter what the temperature is outside of the body you know it could be very very hot it could be very very cold you could have temperature varying you know within 40 degrees celsius uh exterior temperature and the temperature of the body is going to be very tightly regulated of the core temperature so Um, how does this happen? Well, it's actually really similar to your home thermostat more complex, but the principle is very similar. Your home thermostat, the way it works is it measures the temperature of your home. And if it detects deviations from the temperature that has been programmed into it, it enacts corrective responses. And so if the temperature goes higher, It turns on the air conditioning if the temperature goes lower It turns on the heat in an attempt to maintain the stability of the interior temperature And that's exactly how your brain regulates temperature. It measures the temperature both of your core and of your skin and uh, It and when it senses deviations, for example, if your core temperature is changing or there's a really fast change on your skin and it feels like there's an impending change in core temperature. It'll start to enact these programs to try to maintain the stability of your temperature. So if your temperature starts to go up, it will enact physiological things like sweating. It will dilate the blood vessels in your skin. These are automatic. You don't really control those. But it will also um, enact behavioral responses. You'll try to find some shade. You'll try to get cold water. Uh, You may turn up the air conditioning, things like that. You'll take your jumper off, things like that, yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's this suite of physiological and behavioral responses that respond to either hot or cold temperatures and are extremely effective at maintaining your body temperature within a very narrow range. So essentially body fatness... Is regulated in a similar way in humans so we have a part of the brain um, in the hypothalamus that measures your body fatness and it measures your body fatness using a hormone called leptin so this is just like your thermostats measuring the temperature of your home your brain is measuring your body fatness using a hormone called leptin whose concentration in your bloodstream is proportional to to the amount of fat you carry. So more leptin equals more fat. Your brain can measure your body fatness. And then your brain tries to regulate your body fatness to keep it at a stable level. And so if it senses, and and by the way, the one way that this thermostat analogy breaks down is that this system I'm telling you about seems to be better at preventing you from losing weight than it is at preventing you from gaining weight, but that depends on the individual. Some people actually are very resistant to weight gain as well, but it's not as variable. The, the fact, most people, almost everyone, almost everyone's brain does not take kindly to weight loss, but only some people's brains don't take kindly to weight gain. So, um, and, and the people who have obesity are obviously the people whose brains don't you know are are okay with the weight gain so uh but basically you have you have um this regulatory process happening and um and it's it's regulating your body fatness around a set point a particular place that it wants to be just like your thermostat does and um your set point can go up or down. So if in someone who has not deliberately attempted to change their weight, they're just living their normal life, eating how much they want to eat, whether they're lean or obese, they probably will be at their set point. They are at the weight that their brain wants them to be at. And then if you are lean or obese and you try to lose fat and you go below that set point, your brain's gonna say, hey, wait a minute, I don't don't like this, I don't want to lose weight. And what it'll start to do is it will enact, just like when your temperature is changing, it will enact a set of physiological and behavioral responses to try to restore the lost body fat. And so you'll get hungrier, you'll be more responsive to food cues, you'll be more likely to gravitate toward calorie-dense foods, you'll have a harder time restraining your appetite, Uh, and you may also, your, your calorie expenditure may diminish disproportionately to your weight loss. So in other words, your metabolic rate will slow and your body will try to conserve energy to try to put it back into that fat tissue. And that will essentially continue until your, your fat comes back. And so this is why when you look at all the randomized controlled trials that have been done on weight loss, or you just talk to your friends who have done it, what you see is that people will lose weight but often if you look a year later or two years later they have regained it or at least most people have regained most of the weight it would be a better way to put it um not to say that no one can do it effectively but you see results that frankly tend to be pretty disappointing in 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 the overall population and that's because their brains don't on an instinctive impulsive level Do not want them to lose the fat and they will fight back with these responses I've talked about until that fat comes back until the leptin comes back and the brain is satisfied that you're not starving yourself anymore because this is literally a starvation response this is the same thing you see in lean people who are starving and it's the same thing you see in people who genetically lack leptin so the brain thinks they're starving, you see the same thing. So this is really, this is a starvation response designed to prevent you from doing something which in our evolutionary history would have been dangerous. The brain does not want you to lose weight because th- that would have been disastrous in the, con- in the context of our ancestors.
0: Um. also with obesity, um, is there such a thing as leptin resistance where the brain's just not getting a, the message that they are in a in a fed state? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So and, and we still have a lot to learn about what that term exactly means, leptin resistance. But basically what you see in people with obesity is they have a higher set point. So the brain is regulating around a higher level of body fatness. That is the level the brain wants to be at, and any downward changes from that are resisted. So how? But how does that happen? I mean, how do you get? Because a lot of people with obesity didn't—they weren't born with obesity; they developed it. So how does how does the set point increase? So um, what we see in people with obesity is they require more leptin to um for their brains to be satisfied that they have enough fat. So basically um they for for the same level of uh essentially for for their for their brains to feel like you are at the right level you need to be, they need more leptin than a person who is lean. So they it requires more of a leptin signal to satisfy those brain circuits. And um, this is very analogous to what we see in insulin resistance in the rest of the body. So insulin resistance is uh, a metabolic disturbance that's very, very common. And basically what happens is your tissues can't really hear the insulin very well, so your pancreas has to secrete more and more insulin to do the same job to keep your blood sugar under control, and then eventually your pancreas can't keep up and you get diabetes. That's, that's essentially what happens. Um, And so researchers in my field have proposed a very similar process occurring in the brain where the cells that normally would respond to the leptin are having a hard time hearing it. They are resistant to that leptin signal, The same way the tissues in the rest of your body can be resistant to the insulin signal and there's only and and so they require more leptin and the only way to get more leptin is to have more fat so essentially that leptin resistance explains why people with obesity require a higher leptin level for their brains to be satisfied that they have enough fat so they're they're getting the same leptin signal as a lean person but they're requiring more leptin to get there because their brain can't hear that leptin very well.
0: Awesome, good. Um, so, what we're going to move on to is obviously um, kind of how do we um, how how best to manage weight? Really, um, how do we outsmart this kind of mechanism to a certain degree? Without obviously people are already obese or overweight listening to this, so they don't have the the choice of not becoming overweight. So what's the best way to to kind of lose weight but not only lose it but maintain?
1: Yeah, so I you know what I what I said previously probably um makes it sound more hopeless than it is. It does. I know it sounds very negative, but um, I don't think I don't think it has to be taken that way. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, One of them, the first thing I'm going to say is that from a health perspective, even fairly modest losses of weight can have major health and metabolic benefits. And this has been really, really well established by huge randomized controlled trials That went on for multiple years and had hard endpoints like actual diabetes diagnoses and they showed that just losing five to ten pounds and exercising more and eating a diet that's a little bit healthier and and i'm i'm just these are pretty modest interventions like people didn't even stick with the intervention very well they exercised a little bit more they ate a bit of a healthier diet they lost a few pounds and their risk of diabetes declined by 58%. So, we're talking about huge effects from relatively small changes in diet and lifestyle. So, there's a, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of benefit you can get in in your health and in your well-being from small weight losses or even from no weight loss at all and improving your diet and lifestyle. I think there's a lot that can be harvested there. So that's, that's one thing I wanted to say, um, on the positive side. And so also another thing I want to say is that this set point mechanism that makes fat loss so hard. I mean, we know fat loss is hard. Okay. We know that, um, that is the reason it's hard, but, um, the thing I want to say is that the set point mechanism, another way that it differs from your home thermostat and also differs from the regulation of body temperature is that the set point can actually be changed. So the set point is not this inflexible permanent thing that's always going to be the same. It actually, there's there's a fair amount of research in both human and animal models uh, showing that it can be flexible and it responds to the conditions that you place it in. And so if you, for example, uh, just to give you like a a really quick example of this in rodents, if you put animals on a um, really highly palatable diet that they, that's calorie dense and they really love, they'll eat a bunch of it and get really fat but if you restrict their calorie intake, you can keep them lean. But as soon as you take them off that uh, calorie restriction, they will go right back up to being fat. But the uh, but if you switch them instead onto a healthy diet that is lower in calorie density and unrefined, they will actually remain lean without having without having to actively restrict their calories. So they defend a different level of body fatness. Their brains defend a different level of body fatness or have a different body fat set point depending on the diet that they're eating. And there's actually a fair amount of evidence that this happens in humans too. And I think that this actually explains a lot about why so many different types of diets work. So why is it that if you look in the literature, low-carbohydrate diets cause weight loss, low-fat diets cause weight loss, Vegan diets cause weight loss. Paleo diets cause weight loss. Every diet causes weight loss, even diets that are like diametrically opposed to one another. So how does that happen? I mean, you can't really explain this by saying that carbohydrate is fattening or fat is fattening. You have to have a broader principle that explains all of this. And uh, so essentially, when you eat a diet, that is lower in palatability. In other words, it's not quite as seductive. The foods are not quite as seductive. You're eating simple, really simple foods like our ancestors used to eat. Uh, Things like just fresh meats and cooked potatoes and fruits and vegetables and whole eggs and things like that instead of more calorie dense, highly palatable processed foods. And when you're eating things in their whole natural state, those things uh, tend to promote a lower set point, so the brain will actually become more comfortable at a lower set point. And this is why you can see people who improve their diet, they, they, they start to eat a diet that is very qualitatively healthy, so they're eating very healthy foods. And you'll see that people often will lose weight on that kind of diet without deliberately restricting their calorie intake. Their brains just naturally start to regulate at a lower level. And so I think that you kind of, if you want to lose weight uh, sustainably, the first thing to do is you need to recognize that there are these brain circuits that exist that are going to make your life more difficult. You have to recognize that. You have to know a little bit about, how they work. And then you have to take steps to address that fact and to to make life easier on yourself. Because the truth is, no matter what those brain circuits are doing, no matter what your hypothalamus wants to do, you can make yourself lose weight if you just stick to a low calorie diet. I mean, there's no doubt about that. That's the physics. We know that's true. Um, however, you have to fight yourself that's the problem is you have to fight yourself every day and most people just don't have The willpower to stick with that over years and years and years and how could you it's like The analogy would be like feeling thirsty all the time and not letting yourself have a drink. That's tough So I think you have to understand these systems and address them if you want to have the staying power and so eating A simpler, unrefined, lower calorie density diet that kind of satisfies these circuits with a lower level of body fatness and lower calorie intake, I think is a great option. Um, And I also think that some other things you can do that have a similar effect are regular physical activity. Not only does that use calories, but it also, in most people, not everyone, it tends to make the the brain more satisfied with a lower level of body fatness. Um, and then optimizing your stress management and your sleep as well are other inputs to that system that can help to optimize it and help the brain feel more comfortable with uh, less body fat.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about exercise. Would you say exercise was a good weight management kind of Uh, think to consider or would it be more the behavioral things that are surrounding exercise people tend to choose to eat a little bit healthier because they're doing x y and z whether it's in the gym or whether it's a sport or a certain thing
1: yeah i mean um i think personally i think exercise has been a bit underrated in terms of its weight loss potential and especially its potential for preventing weight gain um, I think I mean first of all, I think it's abundantly clear that exercise is just part of a healthy lifestyle you should be doing it either way but um, Also uh, Part of the problem with the, the, the data on this there are a lot of people who have said that exercise is really not very effective for weight loss and there's there's a lot of data to back that up. A lot of studies have shown that it's not really doing a whole lot. However, most of those studies, in most of those studies, people were barely exercising. I mean, the problem is that in these studies, you tell people to exercise, and then they don't do it. That's the problem. And then you do a study on that, and you say exercise is ineffective. And what all you've shown is that people don't exercise when you ask them to <laughs> And so, if you look specifically at the studies where people are doing a substantial amount of exercise and they're doing it in a setting where their exercise can be supervised and monitored by researchers, what you see is that people can actually lose a fairly substantial amount of fat um, and weight, but especially fat. And um, and and furthermore, that the amount of weight and fat that people lose varies quite a bit between individuals and and The reason is that some people compensate more than others by eating more and so uh, Maybe some people would say hey I exercise so I earned this You know this pastry, but I think I think it actually goes deeper than that I think it also affects those brain circuits that regulate body fatness because we see the same thing in experimental animals Animals that are exercising regularly tend to stay leaner than animals that are not and they tend to be protected from the fattening effects partially protected I should say from the fattening effects of an unhealthy fattening diet So you can put animals on a really fattening diet and then get them to exercise regularly and they won't get as fat as they otherwise would If they were not exercising, not to say that they don't get fat, but they get less fat. And so, um, and so basically you have some people that compensate and they, they work up an appetite. It affects their hunger circuits and they compensate by eating enough calories so that to make up for the amount that they burn and they don't lose any fat. Those people exist, but they're a minority. What usually happens is that people do get hungry and they eat a bit more, but it doesn't quite fully make up for the calories they burned. And then there are some other really lucky people, and I know a few of these in my personal life, where when they exercise, they instead of working up an appetite, they actually eat less when they exercise, and then they lose weight at a really fast rate. And so those are like hyper responders. And that's also a minority of people. But those people do exist. But most people will partially compensate, but not fully compensate and and lose weight. And I think this has to do with how that exercise affects our brain circuits and ultimately our our eating behavior.
0: Brilliant. So what we'll do, we'll just uh, kind of start tying this up. So just to basically summarize is... Create yourself a um environment, environment, an eating environment that promotes health, satiety, um, and kind of low palatable foods. Um, yourself, Stefan, how do you kind of manage it? Do you do you enjoy the odd treat now and then? I do, I do. Um,
1: so, I, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the food environment because that's really important the food cues that surround us can really determine uh, how much we eat and how healthy we eat. And so in that vein, if you walk into my kitchen right now, there's literally no visible food anywhere in my kitchen. If you want food, you have to open the closet and you could get out a bag of unsalted peanuts in shells and you could start shelling peanuts. Uh, But I won't really do that unless I'm pretty hungry Um, usually the only visible food in my kitchen will be fresh fruit. So like apples and oranges. And again, with something like an orange, you have to work a little bit
0: to get in there. And then oranges. (laughs) Oh, do you? Yeah. I I like the taste, but they're just such a, they're such an ass.
1: Yeah. It's a little bit of a pain to peel it. Right. And so, um, and so you're not going to do that unless you're motivated and you're not going to be motivated unless you're hungry. And so it helps to match your calorie needs, your, your calorie intake to your true needs. If there was a bag of chips on the counter, if there were steaming hot brownies on the counter, I wouldn't need to feel hungry to eat that. I would, I would have a hard time resisting that every time I walked past it. So, so I keep a very clean food environment, um, both at home and also at my place of work, same thing. You don't want to be within arm's reach of food, especially tempting food. Uh, you don't want to have to smell it. You don't want those cues that get your dopamine spiking to be around you. You don't want to be looking at food ads on television, ideally on billboards. Those things also get your dopamine spiking. Um, so there's uh, there's that. And as far as the food that I eat, I just try to eat uh, a diet that's based around unrefined lower calorie density foods so i i don't eat a lot of flour based foods like bread those tend to be fairly calorie dense um and especially when you're adding fat and sugar to it as in cakes and cookies and that sort of thing those are not weight loss foods (laughs) or even weight maintenance foods those are weight gain foods um I eat those every now and then, so I'll have some ice cream uh, occasionally, I'll have some pizza occasionally, but I know I'm going to eat too much when I eat those things. It's This is something that I understand about the situation. I'm not doing it for my health. I'm doing it because I'm at a friend's house and they serve it to me, or I am in a situation where it's hard to say no, or I just feel like having it every now and then, um, and so But that doesn't work for everyone. Some people are their their dopamine circuits are so triggered by those things that it will set off a kind of like food catastrophe for them where they have a hard time constraining their intake. But I'm not like that. I I'm if something's in front of me, I'm probably going to eat it and I have a hard time saying no, but it's not going to like trigger a binge for me the next day. So I know that about myself, and I can have those treats and not worry about it. But my, my meals are real simple. So there's very little added fats, um, very little added sugars, um, and it's, it's just simple food. So like last night, um, I had some potatoes, some baked potatoes with nothing on them as the starch. Uh, I had a lentil stew. And I had a tomato salad with some vinaigrette salad dressing on it. And then usually for dessert, uh, we'll have some kind of fruit, berries or apples or some kind of fresh fruit. And I just keep it really simple, just really simple, unrefined foods like what our ancestors would have eaten. Um, And I keep a clean food environment,
0: and that works well for me. What about things like, just to to finish on— Things like Diet Coke, so you're still getting this kind of pleasure response reward, but you're not getting the calories. Do you think that's a good kind of uh, weight management uh, technique? Sorry, what is that? Diet what? Diet Coke, you know, Coca-Cola, oh, like, you know, yeah, diet yeah, sodas yeah. and calorie-free, but you're still getting that kind of obviously sweetener response.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question. So... I don't think this issue has really been definitively resolved yet. Um,
0: Do it, Stefan. Do it. (laughs) Resolve it. Sorry? Resolve it for us.
1: Well, okay, so I I wish I could. So what I'm trying to say is that there's still uncertainty in the scientific literature. Um, You have these observational studies that are saying, hey, people who drink these things regularly are gaining weight that's tough to interpret. We don't really know why they're gaining weight. Is it actually the soda or is it something else about their diet and lifestyle? We don't really know. What I will say is that the randomized controlled trials in general suggest that diet sodas are not fattening. So, I mean, the fact that they don't contain any calories is kind of an obvious explanation for that. Um, And you can theorize that, you know, maybe they trigger your dopamine or they trigger some brain circuits in some way that makes us eat later. Uh, It's kind of hypothetical at this point and the randomized controlled trials overall have not really supported that. Um, So I, again, it's not really resolved, but if I had to guess right now, based on the evidence, I would say they probably are not fattening and they probably are less fattening than sugar sweetened beverages.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've just kind of come off the back of a of dieting period for a photo shoot and you know I used calorie free um sodas and low fat ice cream and calorie low ice creams just to kind of still get that that response you know but um mm-hmm. yeah that's that's brilliant um so just to tie things up and finish up um Obviously, there's the book, The Hungry Brain, which I think's absolutely awesome if people are more interested in kind of delving a little bit deeper into the science and obviously the practical um, answers behind weight management. Where else can people find you, Stefan?
1: Yeah, they can also find me at my website, which is com. And if that's too hard to spell, then you can go to wholehealthsource.org. I also, uh, my Twitter handle, I'm quite active on Twitter, and my Twitter Twitter handle is at whsource.
0: Awesome. Um, I just want to thank you again, Stefan, for spending the past hour talking to me, and um, I'm sure the audience are going to absolutely love it, and I appreciate it. Um, I appreciate everything that you're doing as far as health and fitness is concerned.
1: Okay, great. Thank you, Ian.
0: Right. Speak to you another time. Thank you, Stefan.
1: Okay. No problem. Bye. Bye.